turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. beginning a new sermon series, a 10-part series on God's creation, which will take us all the way through Genesis 1, as well as a few other important passages in the Bible that touch on creation, like Proverbs 8, which speaks about God's wisdom in creation, Psalm 8, which is a poem describing the creation of man, reprising Genesis 1 and 2. But this morning we come to the beginning. Genesis 1.1. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, I pray now that your word has been read, that the thoughts and, and reflections, questions, and the attention of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we've sung, that you would turn our minds away from vanity. I pray that you would indeed, by your Holy Spirit, direct our attention to the things of God and of his holy word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, A Brief History of Time, From the Big Bang to Black Holes, the late Stephen W. Hawking concludes with this observation. We find ourselves in a bewildering world. We want to make sense of what we see around us and to ask, what is the nature of the universe? What is our place in it? Where do we come from? Why are things the way that they are? Dr. Hawking proceeds to explain how primitive peoples explained scientific mysteries by making up myths and how science over time has come to our rescue particularly in the past 300 years, by providing an understanding of natural laws that used to be explained by supernatural superstitions. God had been, Hawking says, and to some extent still is, relegated simply to the things that we do not know or do not understand. This points out a problem, I think, that human beings have. Too often, God is employed as a backup explanation for the things that we don't understand or we can't figure out on our own. This is just like the Garden of Eden. The knowledge of good and evil is never enough. We don't just want to know things, you see. We want to be in charge of things. We don't want to be able to say, this is good and this is evil. We want to define good and evil, but what Hawking and you and I, when we follow his line of thinking or in our educations, What if we have it backwards? What if the order in which we see and discover the world and meaning and coherence arises not fundamentally from unknown and as of yet undiscovered natural laws, but from the supremely rational mind of a creative God? What if the laws emerge from a pre-existing creator, designer, maker, and sustainer? What if the things that we're making up is not God to explain the unknown, but rather the way the world might make sense without God? You see, sinners, in one way or another, always come back to trying to explain God away. That's what we do. 
We use our knowledge, which is another way of saying that we use ourselves to measure all things. But the Christian position is fundamentally opposite this. Now, I don't say it's opposite science. Scientia, knowledge, is, is essential to the Christian faith. And as we'll see this morning, God is an affirming creation positive God. But the Christian position is that all human knowledge must be built, all science must be built upon the knowledge that God gives to man regarding himself, regarding mankind, and regarding the world. Apart from what God has revealed, nothing may be known. This is why studying creation is so important, particularly in society today, particularly in a world that is seemingly determined to explain every trace of God away as some remnant of a prehistoric age. So we've read the scriptures this morning in Genesis 1.1. I'm going to consider from this text this morning what this verse means in context. I'm going to kindly break up the verse into its four words or, or phrases. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So those four words or phrases are going to form the four points of my sermon, and we're going to consider its implication for our lives. So what does this verse mean? We're going to begin with the beginning, this phrase, in the beginning. In his sermon, Donald Gray Barnhouse on this text points out that there are many beginnings described in Scripture. The Gospel of John, for instance, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God goes much farther back than our verse does here in Genesis 1.1. It goes back into eternity when there was no material world. But Genesis 1.1 describes the beginning of the material universe. In a couple of weeks, we're going to learn more about the days of creation, but right now we're seeing here in this text that we have the beginning of time. Genesis 1.1, by saying in the beginning, tells us something about the beginning of time itself. Before this verse and the time it describes, there was nothing. There was no creation and no time. The only thing or being that existed was God. What this means is that we have a hint here that with the beginning, this God, this personal God, has already has in mind that there is an end. 1 Samuel 3.12 says, When I begin... I shall also make an end. But second, it shows us that God himself exists before time and is not subject to time. Time is not even part of his being. If God exists in time, he is not shaped or affected by time. God is present in creation. He is everywhere. He is omniscient. That is certain. But while he is in time, he is above and beyond time because he is the eternal God for whom there are no days, there are no time. Now this is different than all the gods of the creation stories which were around when Moses originally wrote this down. Now the Moses was a very smart man. The Bible tells us that he was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He had the, essentially the Harvard education of the ancient world. You can be sure that Moses knew about all of the Babylonian creation myths, all of the Egyptian creation myths, he had at his disposal. But this creation story, while it does have some superficial resemblance to some of these other creation stories, is absolutely unique 
to take just one example, there's a myth called the Epic of Atrahasis. In this myth, the personified waters are present at the beginning. There is no God. And out of these personified waters emerges gods, pl plural, multiple gods. And these gods, which are the offspring of the waters, then turn around and conquer the waters, establishing their own deity. So by defeating the waters, they become gods. Well, these kind of gods are very different, aren't they, than what we see here in Genesis 1-1, which simply says, in the beginning, God. God faces no rival in our story, no conflict, no chaos, no disorder, no frustration. There is no battle, and there is nothing before him. There are no primeval waters out of which this God emerges. God is simply the eternal, all-powerful creator God. Even the so-called chaos of Genesis 1-2, which we'll look at next week, is strangely peaceful because we see the text in the text, the Spirit of God is sovereignly hovering over the unformed waters. So that's in the beginning. Second, in the beginning, God, and I've already begun to talk about God, but this verse, Genesis 1-1, highlights the most important being or person, if you will, in the entire Bible. It's God. This verse is about God. This chapter is about God. This book, Genesis, is about God. In fact, the entire collection of books of the Old and New Testaments are all about God. Now, the Hebrew word here for God is interesting, and it's worth talking about for a minute or two, and that word is Elohim. This is the most common word in the Old Testament for the deity. It's like our English word God and that it can be applied to multiple pagan deities as well. So if we talk, for example, about a Muslim god, we're talking about Allah. It is not the Christian god. It's a different god altogether. If we're talking about the notion of a god in a tribal religion of South America or of Africa or of the Australian Arab, uh, Aborigines, we might refer to those beings, those deities, as gods using the same word, G-O-D, as we use for the Christian God. But it's like a container that has a very different content. Same thing with the word Elohim. Here it is used to describe the living and true God. In Elohim, that ending, I-M, im, refers to how we make words plural in the, in the Hebrew language. It would be like if we put an S on the end of gods, G-O-D-S would refer to plural gods, Elohim literally means gods. Now, why is this plural? Well, Hebrew grammar will tell us that it's something called a plural of majesty. Isn't that interesting? It's a plural of majesty. The rabbis would explain it this way. The plural name of God is understood by referring to Isaiah 6.3. God isn't just holy. He is holy. Holy, holy. And if there were more than one God, he is the God of all gods. And in that sense, he is Elohim. God's name in Hebrew is plural here because he is not just the Lord of some of the powers in the world, but he's the Lord of all powers. So when we see the name God or Elohim, we know it speaks of God's transcendence over the world. 
Some will say that by the, the plural name God that we see a hint to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which is to say because God is described as plural in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1-1, there is a hint of the developing instruction that we'll get on the three persons of the Godhead. I do not believe this is the case. And the reason is because in Genesis 1-2, it says that Elohim, the spirit of Elohim, is hovering over the waters. That is, I believe, a reference, uh, a very early reference to the Trinity. Another interesting thing is that Elohim is uniquely used as the name of God in Genesis chapter 1. But when we get to the to the uh, zooming in on the creation story, the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, we see the name uh, not Elohim used to describe God, but Yahweh or Lord. The reason for this is because Yahweh emphasizes, as we see later in Exodus, the covenantal relationship that God has with his people. So Elohim describes the transcendent creator God over all of the universe, whereas Yahweh describes the covenant-keeping God, the God of his elect people. And we're to put Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3 together, just like we're to put Elohim together with Yahweh. The creator God is the covenant-keeping God. The Lord of the universe is the Lord of our lives and the God of this church. We're going to learn a lot about covenant in some future weeks. But for now, I want to encourage you that God has created the world for his own glory. This same God has specifically created you in covenant relationship with him. So you might listen to his word and do his will. God of creation, God of covenant, one and the same God. We come now to the third word in our opening text this morning. We've covered two already. In the beginning, which is really just one word in Hebrew, beginning. And then we have God. What's the third word in our text? He creates. This word is used in the Bible exclusively to describe the action of God. God is the creator. Creation is something that God does. Now, when man is said to make something or do something or create something, this isn't the same word that's used. A different word is used. So we here have special reference to the special act of God creating all things out of nothing, as our catechism says, in the space of six days and all very good. This is sometimes known as creation ex nihilo from the Latin word nihil, which means nothing. God's making not out of a, a toolkit. He doesn't have a set of paints and an easel that somebody gave him, and he doesn't have some clay that he's using. God simply exists completely and fully by himself. Creation is formed in his mind by his own thought, his own, as it were, mental words, which he, as we will see in a few weeks, speaks, and it comes into existence by divine fiat. This is what Hebrews 11.3 says. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. That's Hebrews 11.3. Creation from nothing proves that God, from the beginning, has always been in control. He's never been subject to anyone or anything. He's never lacked anything. He's never needed anything. In fact, he didn't need to create. 
The reason why he creates for the Christian is a mystery which must be answered simply by saying, for his own glory. That's why God created. It pleased him to do so. And who are we as his creatures to question the mind of our creator like this? We can inquire, we can ask, but we must ask and inquire with reverent and humble worship. A common question which people ask about creation is this, sometimes on the mouths of skeptics, sometimes on the mouths of sincere Christians who simply want to know, is it possible that God can make a rock so big that he cannot move it? It's kind of a riddle. I'll, I'll repeat the question just so you can get your brain around it. Is it possible that the Creator God can make a rock so big that he cannot move it? And when this question is asked by enemies of God or enemies of the church or skeptics, they often pose it as a gotcha sort of question. See, there's something God can't do. And I affirm, yes, there is something God can't do. God cannot make himself out of existence. God cannot lie. He cannot stop to love his people. He will not abandon his son. And he cannot ever fashion, make, or create something in creation that he would then be subject to, for he would cease to be God. Yes, there are many things that God cannot and will not do. This is why in Psalm 124 we read, when the psalmist is surrounded by enemies and about to die, he sings this poem of praise. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. There is no rock so big, my God cannot move it. It can't exist. Psalm 124. There's wordplay in, in, in Hebrew here. It says, in the beginning, Bereshit, God created bara. At the root of both words is beginning. And by combining them together, we have the unassailable argument that God has created from the beginning all that there is. It makes it absolutely clear that we're describing here the, the origins of all known reality. This also rules out some newer translations of the Bible, which suggest not an absolute beginning, but rather a temporal one. And in these Bibles, it reads like this in an attempt to translate the Hebrew, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. This translation is not accurate to our context. What we have in our, in our ESV and our English Bibles describes an absolute beginning, which is what God did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, I believe this is the first act of creation as well, which we'll get to more in a moment. But when it says God created the heavens and the earth, that isn't just summarizing everything that's about to happen, sort of like um, kind of telling you in advance before it happens. No, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it happened in this verse. So this verse is actually the first act of creation, which we then zoom in in verse 2, as we'll see next week, a little bit more specifically about what the creation of the earth looked like in the beginning. So in the beginning is our first point. God is our second point. Created is the third point. What's the fourth point? The heavens and the earth. We need to look at this phrase, the heavens and the earth. This could, as I say, refer to the whole act of creation in summary form. It shows up again in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished 
and all the host of them. But notice in 2.1 it says that they were finished. In 1.1 it says simply that they were created. And clearly in 1.2 they are not yet finished, as well as 1.3 through 25 will show us as, as well. I also want to say that, that there are some things that we can, we can speculate about a little bit with this phrase, heaven and earth. If this is the absolute beginning, is heaven and earth a phrase that describes all of visible creation? See, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly. Or do heavens and the earth describe two spheres of creation? One is the invisible realm of creation, the heavens, and two, the visible realm of creation, the earth, which then Moses goes on to talk about in verse 2, 3, and following. In this earthly realm of creation, there is a sky, for instance. There is a, a visible heavens that we can see with our eyes. But we all know that Scripture presents an invisible heaven as well, which is the dwelling place of God, of the holy angels, and of the evil spirits. Genesis is silent about some of these questions. It doesn't tell us. I happen to believe that the heavens of verse 1 describes the creation, if you will, of the invisible realm in which that God then himself and all of the holy angels dwell. He's silent about their creation in this passage, but I believe it may suggest that. But I want to emphasize that this is a, think of it as a pastoral speculation. And we need to be aware that that Genesis invites these kinds of questions, though it doesn't always satisfy us by answering them. So that's what this verse means, these four phrases or words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What implications does this verse have for our lives? I have three. First, we learn from this that the central character of Genesis and is the Bible, of the Bible as a whole is God. The first chapter of Genesis does not describe Moses' thoughts about God. The first chapter of Genesis calls on Moses as God's prophet, God's spokesman, to declare God's word about God himself. Bruce Walkey puts it this way, the real hero of Genesis is the Lord, and its stories pertain to the origin and life of, of the covenant community under the lordship of the God of Israel. Because this story, because this morning's verse is all about God, it has profound meaning for you and me. This story invites you to find yourself in God's creation. This is, to paraphrase the Marvel Comics universe, your origin story. This is where you've come from. This is all about you. God is your creator. God calls you to live your life in his creation according to his pattern, his guidance. And we'll see he is an, an orderly, guiding, determined, loving creator God. And because he is God, he can do that. He, he can invite you. He, it's his role. It's his prerogative. It's his unique privilege to command you, not just to consider it, but to lay aside all of your thoughts about why you are on the planet and consider what his thoughts are about why you are on the planet. He wants you to surrender how you build your reality so that it's built around God as the center. 
Back to my reference to Stephen Hawking. God isn't just what you put in the blank parts of your life or reality that you don't understand. Rather, God is the Lord of all of your reality, both known and unknown. Because of this, because it is God who is speaking, you are challenged because you're not in Genesis 1-1 as the subject. You're the object. You're what he creates. So this challenges you to accept his interpretation of your life, his interpretation of time, of history, his interpretation of the facts, if you will. And notice there's no apology here. I know this is hard for you to accept, but in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It just set forth as a fundamental truth. Sort of take it or leave it. Deal with it. You are the creatures of God. As much as the feelings in your heart push against that, as much as your autonomous independence doesn't want to accept it, you are God's creature. We'll see in a few weeks you were made in his image. You were made for him. So this is a claim not only to absolute truth, but also to absolute loyalty. Not only is it all about God, however, this shows us that nothing is outside of God's control. God proceeds in his way in this verse according to his plan. He doesn't spell out all the details in the first verse, but they're there. And if I'm right, we have the two spheres of creation just waiting for his next move. God is not hurried. God is not worried. He's not impatient. We don't know when he started per se. There's many debates about uh, how old creation is. But God will do his work. It also shows us that there is a theological purpose to this statement. It's intended to show you that nothing is beyond God's power. Vern Poitras makes this comment. He says, in its majestic monotheism, Genesis 1-1 contrasts strongly with the polytheistic cultures around the ancient Near East. It also contrasts with ancient Near Eastern narratives that talked about the birth of gods and conflicts between gods. There's no plurality of gods in our passage. There are no birth events. There's no mention of conflict. God personally rules over all and brings about his holy will. And then third, I mentioned this already with my uh, pastoral speculation. There's a lot here we don't know. See, Genesis isn't written, and Genesis 1-1 certainly isn't written to answer your questions. <laughs> it's, it's written to tell you the questions you should be asking. So God is kind and gracious, and he welcomes our speculations, as I've shared some of mine with you this morning. But we need to recognize that at the end of the day, it's his word that is to guide our lives, not our questions. I think we need to recognize that we have a lot to learn. I think this, this, there's, an, there's an openness to Genesis 1-1 as well that says, feel free to explore, dive in, study creation, ask good questions, but do so in a reverent and holy manner. Do so in a way that helps you to not forget that the scriptures are clear about a number of things that you cannot forget. I want to conclude this morning as, I, as we wrap up this first sermon in a new series on creation by challenging you who are skeptical or struggling with your faith to recognize that the creation that we see, this beautiful world that we live in, is not anonymous. It's got a signature, and the signature is signed 
God. God made it. God made the birds. God made the bees, the, the bugs. He made the planets. He made black holes. He made the oceans and all their depths. He made every grain of sand. He made it all. He made you and all of your quirkiness, all of your uniqueness, the fingerprint that is you. He made men and women. He made us in his image. He made us. And all of these things are intended to communicate to you that fact, that God is. He is. It's not that he is not. He is. Creation is designed to say, I am. I am real. I am here. I exist. I am powerful. I am in control. And we need to recognize creation isn't sufficient revelation. It's called general revelation. It's not sufficient. There's nothing in creation that would lead you to believe, uh, as some have said, the law of nature is written in red, tooth and claw. There's nothing in nature that would automatically lead you to conclude that God is gracious or God is merciful, that God is forgiving, that God would send his son on the cross as he did to die for your sins. Nature isn't sufficient book for that information. We need the scriptures to tell us that. On the other hand, you may not be skeptical. Maybe you're simply struggling with your faith, but still determined to live your life with God. This morning's message is an encouragement. I want to encourage you to face life's challenges knowing that God is with you. He has not abandoned you. The God of creation is the Lord of your life. But when you take this approach, it's not going to be easy. I don't want to lie to you. We live in a society where that sort of confession, God is in charge of my life, I'm living my life for him, that is not welcome. That's not welcome on on Twitter, it's not welcome on Facebook, for the most part. It's not welcome in the public schools, for the most part, in universities, if you're a university student. For the most part, it's not welcome. It seemed to be irrelevant. It seemed to be imaginary. It seemed to be contrary to the laws of human reason. You will be criticized. It seemed to be, if I may put it this way, a different topic altogether. You keep your God and your religious box over there while we do our science and history and literature over here in our, in our creation box. So either God is criticized or God is marginalized and some Christians, well-meaning Christians, minimize God. Ah, well, you know, it's, it's not really that big of a deal that God's the creator. So as we go, as we think about living our lives for God, here's a couple of challenges. One, as I've mentioned, God has revealed himself in nature. I want you to enjoy today, maybe perhaps particularly, but this week, pay attention. Pay attention to the beauty in the world around you. If you're an artist, if you're a musician, pay attention. If I may put it this way, channel the, the beauty in, in nature into your art, into your music, into your work, on your way to and from work. Enjoy the creation that God has made. I know it's fallen, and we're going to see and understand that a little bit more later on in this series. Do not disparage general revelation. Welcome how God has communicated to himself in creation, the, the Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. So listen, 
pay attention. But then again, as I've said already, nature is not enough. God's revelation in nature is not sufficient to learn about his mercy, his grace, and the sending of his son Jesus to die for you. So as you saturate and soak in the revelation of God in nature, make sure you do it with another book in your other hand, which is the special book, the book of God's holy word. If you're struggling, thirdly, I want you to remember Psalm 124. I mentioned that earlier about how the psalmist said, my help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. But I want to read the whole psalm, and if you want, you can turn there with me. Psalm 124. This is comfort for those who are struggling from the God of creation. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would swallow us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. And then this benediction, blessed be the Lord, who has not given us a prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. If you're struggling, I want you to to make that your prayer this week. My help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who made all things. Surely is not surprised by this. Surely the infirmity that is in my mind and my body, surely the, the struggle that's around me, the turmoil, the conflict, the persecution, the struggle, my frustrations with my life, it's not turning out the way I want it to turn out. My help is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He made you. He created you for his purpose. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. As I noted in the beginning with my quote from Stephen Hawking, your tendency as a sinner is to forget this. Actually, you don't just forget it. The Bible says you resist it. You push against it. You don't like it. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is you also. You are truth suppressors, truth deniers in your being, your truth resistors. But it's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the shed blood of the cross, the the empty tomb is rising from the dead on the third day. This power over death, power over creation in redemption, the joining of redemption in creation, which enables you to welcome God and to make God the Lord of your life. This is the Christian way. Christ, your creator and your redeemer, calls you to a different path, not to suppress the truth, but to express the truth in the way that you live, both your words and your actions. He enables you, he calls you to rejoice in tribulation, knowing that the testing of your faith is making you into the kind of creature that he had in mind from the beginning. He's actively involved. His creation is now a recreation. And so all of your life's circumstances are intended to be understood in that light of God's writing the story for you to live. And this is important for children who don't always realize or understand or see the things that are going on around them. Children, you're tempted so often to give up hope. 
But God is calling you in your sufferings, in your ignorance, in your successes, in your triumphs, to rejoice in God, the Creator, and in the Lord, the God of the covenant, who is maker of heaven and earth. Amen. Father, as we bow in prayer, we ask that you would take what has been preached this morning and bring it home to our hearts. Thank you that you are such a marvelous, creating God. We don't begin to claim that we understand all that this means, but at the very least, Lord, as your faithful people, we desire to say, you are the creator, you are the maker of heaven and earth, and you will save us. Not abandon us, but in your covenant, keep your promises to us. Help us in our hour of need. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.